All right. Hymn 627. 627, stanzas 1, 5, and 10. Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, turned away God's wrath forever by his bitter grief and woe. He saved us from the evil foe. Firmly hold with faith unshaken that this food is to be taken by the sick who are distressed by hearts that long for peace and rest. Let this food your faith so nourish, that its fruit of love may flourish, and your neighbor learn from you how much God's wondrous love can do. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, we pray that your grace may always go before and follow after us, that we may continually be given to all good works. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, the verse of the week, Romans 13, 1. Let's speak this together. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Let every soul, does this mean that you do not submit in your body? No. Sometimes soul is what is used to speak of an individual. Think about what St. Peter writes uh, about the ark. How many soul <clears throat> excuse me, how many souls are saved in the ark? Eight. Which is to say, eight individuals, eight people, eight persons are saved. So that every soul is subject to the governing authorities also points to the reality of the union between the body and the soul as the fullness of who the person is which is important for us, especially in the modern day, when the Gnosticism that you see around you all the time would try to separate the body from the soul or the identity from the physical or the real from the whatever, that there's a separation that's taking place instead of allowing these things to be, uh, allowing them to maintain their unity.
So let every soul or every person be subject. What is it to be subject? Put, put, pardon me. Okay, show respect. Yeah, <clears throat> what I want you to think about is, so this is passive, be subject, which means that something is happening to you, but how would you say be subject in the active sense? That's still passive. The, it's passive. It's it's passive if the action is if you are not the 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 subject or uh, excuse me if you are not the actor. If you are not the one who's doing the action. So if you are under the authority of, that's still passive. If you are subject to, that's passive. Think of. Yes, but I want you to use the language that's already given by the apostle. Yes, subject. How would you say, what does it mean to subject yourself, though? Wow. Mm, yes. Yeah, Not actively in support of, but actively in submission to. To be subject is this. Submit. And what does it mean to submit? Just be simple about it. What does it mean to submit? Do what you're told. Do what you're supposed to do. This is what it means when we say that we submit to Jesus, that faith agrees. It means this, don't try to be more religious than Jesus. That's what it means. Here it means do what they tell you. Obey. Be a good citizen. Just like in the household, be good boys and girls, do what mommy and daddy say. And everything will be good for you. But in this case, not to mommy and daddy, but to the governing authorities. Who, who is a governing authority? Which would, broadly speaking, be anyone who has a seat of power. Anybody who holds a seat of power is a governing authority, which means judges, rulers, magistrates, kings, people who make and administer the laws. Hey, does this sound like the language that you hear when we're praying the prayer of the church? It ought to, because that's who we're praying for. Why do you submit to them? Who cares? I don't particularly like every single one of my governing authorities. Why should I submit to them? Well, good question. Thank you for asking. There, <laughs> there is no authority except from God, which means what is that really saying about God? That he is in authority? He is authority. God is authority, which means any degree of authority that you witness is something that exists with God as its root. You can't have authority if you don't have God because God is authority. So anybody who holds authority is wielding it by virtue of God. Like Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. 
And the authorities that, are, that exist are appointed by God. So the fact that there is authority to be had is something that God has established. Remember the old adage, heaven is, uh, hierarchies are heavenly, in hell everyone is equal. So for those of us who are particularly tempted to chafe against authority, and I said us because I am one of them. I don't care for authority. I would much rather be an independent rebel. So for any of you who are like me and who don't like authority and who want to rebel against authority and be the boss of your own self, the fact that authority exists means that authority lies in God and is rooted in him and that he establishes a hierarchy for a reason. And if you are not as high up within the hierarchy as you would like to be, firstly, <clears throat> it's probably good for you because the Lord probably knows what he's doing. For example, it's a good thing that I am not in a position of authority within, say, I don't know, the federal government because I would probably burn it all to the ground. So, good. Pardon me? Please don't. I don't even want it. <laughs> And uh, therefore, anybody who holds the authority, which is rooted in God, is somebody that God has put there. Anybody. Including the wicked. The wicked God establishes for his own purpose. Why do you think he might establish wicked rulers over you? If you want the answer to that question, think of the book of Judges or the book of Lamentations or the book of Jeremiah. I think it makes people go to him when they're under wicked authority. They go to God. You think correctly. The Lord delivers his people into their own lusts when they turn away from him, and he gives them over to their enemies, wicked authorities, and they chafe under the harsh treatment of wicked authorities, and it is only through wicked authorities that they wanted in the first place by their actions that they realize we've hit rock bottom and we actually do need the Lord. There is a cycle there. Here's a, another good example of authorities, um, especially considering uh, this past week was St. Michael and all angels. Who is the authority over the angels? God. Who controls the devils? God. Think about that for one minute. Everything that the, that the devils are permitted to do, God not only permits, but sends them to do. It makes the whole rebellion in heaven really kind of funny because they tried to get away from God and rebel against his authority and then they got kicked out of heaven and they thought, all right, now we're independent and they run around thinking that they're independent but all the while they're still doing exactly what God wants them to do and allows them to do. Where's a really good example of that? I know you can think of one. Ask your question again. I may be answering a different question. Where's one really good example where you see the Lord being the one who ultimately permits and sends wickedness? Adolf Hitler. 
I meant biblically speaking. You're what? I meant biblically speaking. Oh, sorry. <laughs> word, oh, yeah, that's word loud. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the book of Job, because what does Satan have to do before he visits, in, visits afflictions upon Job? He has to ask permission. And I'm going to give you another one that you've never thought about. Who causes the plagues in Egypt? Well, that's what Exodus says, isn't it? God sends the plagues. The funny thing is, the book of Psalms says God sends wicked angels to cause the plagues upon the earth. So who is it? Does God do it or do the wicked angels, who are the devils, or do they do it? God or the devils? Who does it? Well, God, of course, because who commands the wicked angels? God. Who causes the plagues? God does. By what means does he cause the plagues? By sending his servants to cause wickedness or by permitting them to do it. Okay? So even wicked authorities are established by God, which means what for you when you are under the yoke of wicked authorities? You're still under the yoke of God and you are still to obey them as long as they don't you know, go directly conflict with God, which is a whole other topic. Yes? What about, like, murdering all that stuff, that wickedness? Is that still... Well, you're not to condone it. I would... That, that, falls, in, that falls into the category of going, to, going you know, directly opposing God. Are you talking about murder? I'm talking about me, I'm talking about... No, I'm talking about if you are a citizen, like, let's take... Germany, World War II Germany. Who is in control of that? God or the devil? Well, if you say that the devil is in control of it, then it means that the devil works independently of God and has a power that is equal to and opposed to God. God permits it all. Nothing happens that God does not permit. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. We don't have time to go into the depth of the question that you asked here. Let's speak the verse again. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. What is the fourth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents all other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. Here it is again. This is really important here. We should fear and love God so that we, you know, you see this with, with almost all of the explanations of these Ten Commandments, but this is the one where it becomes very important. Why do you obey governing authorities? Not for their sake. You don't obey them if you vote for them and then rebel against them if you didn't vote for them. You don't, you don't say, he is my president if I think he won, but he's not my president if I don't think he won, uh, or if, it, if I think that it wasn't a fair or whatever, if it was rigged, he's not my president. You know, he's always your president. Whoever it is, or whatever, you know, whatever other example you want to use, he's not my king. Does he rule over you? Because then he's your king. doesn't matter if you like the guy or not. He's in a position of authority over you. Therefore, he is whatever position, not my guy. Yes, he is. 
So you don't respect him and love him and cherish him because of who he is, but because he wields an authority that God has given him. And when you respect your authorities, you are, res you are, giving, them, you, you are giving God respect. So it's like the angels serve God. How do the angels serve God? By serving man. How do you, how do you submit to the authority of God? By submitting to the authority of God that is manifest among you. It's not like God has some kind of authority that's, that you don't know about. Like, well, I know he can create the whole earth, but, well, I've never seen any other part of his authority, and I didn't watch him create the earth, so how do I know he really still has authority? Well, because, open your eyes! Are there rulers? Are there kings? Are there leaders? All of those are wielding an authority that is God's authority. Any authority comes from God. So you honor authorities and by honoring your authorities, you are honoring the authority of God. So it's God first, rulers second, because the authority that the rulers wield is God's authority. So you don't despise them, which is an inward act, hating within your heart. Boss man got me paying taxes. Uncle Sam's pulling money out of my pocket. You know, you don't despise them inwardly, but you also don't anger them, which is the outward act. You don't rebel against them. You don't cause dissensions. You don't burn down gas stations. <laughs> yeah, because that's always accomplished a lot of good, don't you know? Uh, Bastille Day, of course, you know, good or bad? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Depends on who you ask, but if you ask the Lord, he'd say, well, you know, Everybody's a little bit at fault there. Nothing's good about that. Okay? But um, honor them, serve and obey them. Hold them in high regard, whether or not you like them, whether or not you... That's why we pray for the president. And I've had pastors say, I'm not praying for that guy because he didn't win the election. I don't really give a rip who wins the election. Whoever is in charge is the guy we're going to pray for. It's like... You know, the idea that I'm not going to pray for him because I don't like him and I didn't vote for him and I think he stole the election or he's going to raise my taxes and take away my guns so I don't like him or he's going to lower their taxes and he's going to give them guns so I don't like him. Whatever it is, you're removing yourself from that. And you are a component there because you are somebody who's being governed one way or another and you are somebody who submits or who lives under that authority. Pray for your rulers, whether you like them or not. And I'll say this, pray for them when you love them, and pray for them especially when you hate their guts. And if you really do hate their guts, pray for yourself that you won't hate their guts. Okay. Uh, questions about that? Okay, kids. Away with you. Yes, sir. Yeah. And then after they got God granted them their wish, then they regret it. Is that, <laughs> yeah. Is that, yeah, didn't I, didn't I do this last week? Yeah. I said, the, the whole thing about, so the Israelites have judges, mm -hmm. and then they say, well, 
we, we don't want judges anymore. And the Lord says, well, why not? The judges are good. I appointed the judges for you. Just do what they tell you. They're good. And they say, but I don't, don't want them anymore. I said, why not? Well, because we're the only ones that have judges. Everybody else has kings. He said, but you're not supposed to be like everybody else. Said, but, but we want to be. And he says, but I don't want you to be. He said, but we don't care what you want. We want to be like that. And he says, Oh boy, are you sure? You really want to be just like all You want to have a king like all of them? Yes, we're tired of being different. We want a king. And then God says, all right, I promise you this. If I give you a king, you're going to hate it. You're not going to like it. Your kings are going to get corrupt. They're going to behave just like all the other kings. Is that what you want? He said, well, we don't want that, but we do want a king. And he said, if I give you a king, that's what it's going to be. Do you want a king? Yes, we want a king. And he said, all right, I'll give you a king. There you go, you got a king. You happy now? That's sort of how it works. He says, yeah, that'll teach you a lesson. That'll be the last time you ask me for a king and you're gonna come crawling back and you're gonna, you're gonna trust in me even more once you see what the kings are gonna be like. My application was not exactly biblical. <laughs> the Germans, <clears throat> the Germans in, uh, in the 1930s were suffering a depression and Adolf Hitler gets out of jail and runs for election, and in Bavaria, he wins an election and then goes on to be what it was. And the, and the Germans hail him as the person who not only turned the depression around, but then did away with the really uh, harsh uh, treaty that they signed with the Allies at the end of World War I. So the Germans get what they asked for. They get Hitler. What they don't realize is they got way more than they asked for, and they, in the end, they regretted it. But I kind of go back and look at that and, and say, well, God told the Germans, okay, this is what you want. Here's what you're gonna get. So, the Lord, <clears throat> the Lord will always give a nation up to its own desires. And if you don't believe me when I tell you that, all you have to do is put your head into a newspaper, not even for five minutes. And you look at that and then you have to ask yourself, is this what the Lord wants for me as a nation? Or is this what the nation has asked for and is now getting? I think it's the latter. But this is a cyclical thing in history. Again, this is why I keep telling you to read the book of Judges. For, for one. I mean, there are other things. But the book of Judges is the book where you've got this cycle. And it's so easy for Christians to look at the Israelites and to make fun of them. Why didn't they just stay with the Lord? And the first person that asks me that question is the person who's going to get that question turned back on them. Why didn't you just stay with the Lord? Ooh. You know, it's like, this is the problem with Christians, okay? Christians are Pharisees. And here's the example that I'll give you. You know, when Jesus talks about the publican, the Pharisee and the publican, tax collector, and they both go to the temple. What's the difference between the two? The one is proud of himself and the other 
It's, well, it's not so much a matter of being proud of oneself. The, what, what are they both acknowledging? There's, they're, they're, God is there. Yes, but what are they acknowledging about themselves? That they need God. That they need God. So the Pharisee is, is the Pharisee being pious when he goes to the temple? He attempts to be, yes. I, mean, I didn't mean that as a trick question. He, 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 he believes that he's being pious and he wants to be pious and he goes to the temple to repent of his sins. Which he didn't have any. Not like he didn't have those kind of sins that the other person had. He didn't I, think he had. I thank God that I'm not a sinner like that guy. I do these things that I'm supposed to do. And I'm coming to the temple because that's what's required of me and I'm doing it for you, O Lord, and isn't this good and I'll offer repentance for whatever sins I have but I know that they're taken care of and thank, thanks be to you for giving me the strength so that I don't come here crawling on my hands and knees like this son of a gun right over here. Meanwhile, the son of a gun who's crawling on his hands and knees to the temple is the one going, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. By my fault, by my fault, by my own most grievous fault. Look what I have done. Lord, please forgive me by, according to your mercy. Which one is the better one? Which one goes home justified? Well, the one who actually goes there with true repentance. But here's the problem with Christians, okay? Christians come and what do they say? Christians come to the temple and what do they say? I thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. The Pharisee becomes the publican who goes there and beats his breast because you Christians are the ones that come to the temple and say, boy, those Pharisees were pretty bad, weren't they, Lord? I'm, I'm really glad that I'm not going to be like them. And he says, don't you realize that when you say that, you are them? And why are the... If you, if you listen to the parables and you read the accounts of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and you think to yourself... I'm really glad that I'm not like a Pharisee. Or you think to yourself, if I have to identify where I am in this parable, I am definitely the people that are there following Jesus around. If that's how you look at scripture and that's how you see yourself, then you're the Pharisee. Because that's the whole point. That's what the Pharisees are. So, what, why are we even talking about this? I don't even remember. <laughs> this is what I lament is that there is no such thing as short-term memory. It's a myth to me. <laughs> I have faith that someday I'll have it and understand it in the resurrection. <laughs> um, Aubrey asked a question that's an important question, and she's not here because she's teaching Sunday school. And I forgot about that but we didn't have time to answer it. So before we do that, no, it's, there's not a hymn study today because this week was a really, really busy week and I just didn't have time to do it. But this is, yeah. So not, not everybody is, is as crushed as others, I know. <laughs> so, but I, I do want to say one thing, though, about this hymn. If you look down at who wrote the text, John Huss, German version by Martin Luther. Why is that important? Who's John Huss, anyway? Who cares? Burned at the stake. Burned at the stake for what? Heresy, supposedly. Okay, but, not, but tell me, actually, though, not supposedly. Mm. 
My memory's not that good. <laughs> Man does not live by hearsay alone. <laughs> he was burned at the stake for attempting to reform the Roman Catholic Church. See, Luther is... Mar in the wrong geography. Pardon me? In the wrong geography. Yeah, he was just born in the wrong time and place. Yeah. <laughs> so, here's the thing. <clears throat> Huss was a reformer before Luther, and Luther tr basically tried to do the same thing that Huss did, and Luther had many of the same problems that Huss had, and attempted to do basically all of the same things that Huss tried to do, and Luther, because of other circumstances of his time and locale, actually succeeded uh, by the grace of God in, in doing what Huss was not able to do. And there are a lot of historical reasons for why that is, and we don't, you know, we don't have time to look at all the different facets, but it is, it is really interesting to have a hymn like this, and you look at this, and is there anything about the sacrament in this hymn that you look at and you say, well, that's pretty bad. I don't think I agree with that. No. In fact, when you look at this hymn, it's almost like it's a paraphrase of the small catechism. But it was way before the small catechism, which should indicate to you a sense of consistency with what is affirmed and taught throughout the Reformation time and onward and what came before. Because here's Huss, a hundred years before the Reformation, our Reformation, pretty much doing the same thing and trying to teach exactly the same thing and trying to make, by and large, all of the same fixes. Yes? I, can, uh, I can't call it word for word, but there's a... There's a uh, quotation, supposedly, from, from Hus that says, if you look, his name is Bohemian and Luther was German, that Hus said, you can burn this old buzzard, but a swan will come forth. And the translations, uh, somehow or another, the swan translates as Luther. There's... So there's some connection there between Hus and Luther, even though they were 100 years apart. Sure. And I, that'll be your assignment for next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just the only church where the pastor gets homework for a Bible class. <laughs> I, I, I wish I, I don't even know where I read that. But that I'll see if I can find it. But, uh, and Bohemian, uh, I don't know, the play between Bohemian and, and German what those two names apply to this saying that sure. is attributed to Hus. Yeah, and then here is the, so uh, Hus is before Luther, but then on the other side of Luther, the big question then is, who actually solidifies Luther's Reformation teachings? Because it's not Martin Luther. It's the second Martin. Do you know who the second Martin is? Chemnitz. Yeah, Martin Chemnitz. The first Martin would not have survived were it not for the second Martin. So Chemnitz is actually, you know, Huss comes and paves the way for Luther. Luther comes, but nothing that Luther does actually would have lasted if it were not for Martin Chemnitz, who then solidifies that teaching and continues, uh, continues going forward. So 
the Reformation is not even just a one-man. Sometimes Luther becomes like a folk hero, where he comes in with the nail and the hammer, and it's the shot heard around the world. And then here's Luther in the ring with the whole Roman Catholic Church. And he's, you know, taking on everybody. You know, he came to kick butt and chew bubblegum, and he's all out of bubblegum. That's a way homer, because you get it on the way home. Uh, anyway, boy, it's a tough crowd today. <laughs> um, uh, so there's a, there's a lot that happens with the Reformation, um, and it's more than just the individual of Luther, although Luther, at that particular time and juncture, becomes kind of the catalyst that, that does it. But even for Luther, the catalyst isn't all his own experiences, but it's the historical recognition of, of Hus in Bohemia. So yeah, there's a lot there, but it's a very interesting thing to look at that and realize that the German version of the hymn then that's translated that we have was written, were translated by Luther from Hus's original uh, work, and you realize the, uh, the consistency in the, te the, the doctrine that is taught. Now, to, to the question of, of, the, of the moment, she asked about authority in governance and who is really in charge. Well, the short answer is this, who is really in charge? Who is the one who orders the universe? Who's the one that pulls Job's pants down and gives him a spanking and tells him, who do you think you are? Did you help to measure the earth? Did you lay the plumb line? Did you do any of that? Did you name the stars in the heaven? Did you do that? Because until you did all of that, you don't get to come to me and talk to me like that, young man. Okay. Who is the one with the power and the authority? The Lord. To whom, excuse me, who is subject to the Lord and to his power and to his authority? Everything, everyone, which is to say all of creation. creation. Think about John 1. Oh, I've got too many things marked here and I want to keep stuff marked. Because let me just look at this for a minute. Sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow to think that God is actually the one who permits things to happen, but you have to realize this. Blah, 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 blah. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Uh, who is the source of all things? Who permits the existence of all things? God. You could not exist if God did not will for you to exist. Nothing happens that God does not permit. You are under the authority of God. And in particular, the angels are subject to him in service, which means that 
Is it, is it possible for an angel to act contrary to its nature? The nature of an angel is to serve God. Is it possible for any angel to act contrary to its own nature? No, it is not. What about the fallen angels? What about the fallen angels? I never said that they agreed with God. I said that they serve God. And that's the distinction. Now, they, like I said, they rebel against the Lord. They, Satan and his angels want to be gods themselves. We want to be the ones that hold the authority. And they think that they have a degree of authority, but they, and to some extent they do, but not really any more than any other angel does. And it's, a, it's an authority that's still rooted in God's authority that he permits. But the thing is, when, when a devil does something like the plagues of Egypt, which are attributed to God, are they acting contrary to their nature in causing that kind of a destruction? No, they're not, because they're still serving God. Can Satan go and afflict Job without the express consent of God? No! He cannot! So they are still subject to God, even though they have rebelled against him. That's really important. So they don't, they don't act freely running around with the Lord up there going, Oh, doggone it! Somebody, somebody stop him from doing that! What's going on here? Come on! Put out these fires, angels! What are you doing? You know, like the devil somehow gets the best of, of God. This is the problem, okay? It's a problem of dualism. Two things together, right? So dualism is very popular because of the idea of balance. Can you think of something that's a very popular depiction of this balancing dualism, perhaps from Eastern religions? You see it everywhere. People get tattoos of it all the time. Yin-yang. It's a balance. Two opposing things, but they work they create harmony in their balance. It's popular, it makes, I mean, it kind of makes sense, but here's the problem. Are God and the devil in equal and opposite harmony? No, they're not. Does the devil have the same degree of power that God has? No. Is he a worthy opponent? No, he's not. I mean, the devil, uh, God crushes the devil like a carcass, too. He's nothing. What are you? You're a, you're a fly. I don't know if it's okay in culture to say this anymore, but I remember listening to Bill Cosby, and Bill Cosby had a whole bit where he'd talk about growing up. He said, in the inner city, and you grew up and you played a game called Buck Buck. And he said, everyone get together and you'd... They'd, you'd, you'd, you'd send over the buck bucks. Every kid would go and he'd run and he'd jump on the backs of all the kids. And you'd see how many kids you could get to jump on your group's back before the group collapsed. And he said, well, we played against the big kids. 
and we went first. So we started, you know, we started sending our kids down. Oh, here comes Buck Buck number one. And they go, and he said, this is what he said. The big kids, they made fun of us. So the first kid went and they said, what is that, a fly? You're hitting us with a fly? And the next kid went and he goes, what is that, a piece of paper? Whoa, send us another piece of paper? You know, and of course the whole joke is, well, then here comes Fat Albert. Uh, and then they send Fat Albert down and Fat Albert wins the game for them. But the point is, this is what it always makes me think of thinking about the devil and God. It's Bill Cosby talking about Buck Buck. Because what you think is happening is like what you see in the pictures. Devil comes in like a, show, like a knight, you know, with his, with his lance and his shield, and they're ready to go. And at the other side, there's Jesus. And they're going to, oh, who's going to win? I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see because they're both pretty powerful. Ooh, I don't know. This is going to be a good fight. It's not. It's hilariously lopsided. So what really happens is the devil gets up there, all right, let's go fight you, mister. And Jesus comes in with all of his arm and says, all right, here we go. And the devil goes, oh. And the devil charges Jesus and Jesus says, what is that, a piece of paper? What is that, a fly? Come on. It's, it's, there is not an equal degree of power here. And I'll give you the perfect example. I wrote an article about this, so this is where I'm kind of an expert. <laughs> and by an article, I mean one that was actually published. Okay. Anyone can write an article. And, well, I, you know, I wrote about it. <laughs> uh, when you read the passion narratives in the Gospels, who sits as the grand mastermind behind the betrayal, the arrest, the, the sham trial, the treatment of Jesus, and ultimately the crucifixion? God. You're, you're being... Without, without what happened. Well, yes, you're right, of course, but you're being too pious about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're anticipating me... And you're stealing my thunder a little bit. <laughs> no. Who, who enters into Judas? The devil! Watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ sometime. Because you'll realize something in watching that movie that you don't realize when you're reading the Bible. And that is, anytime there's something really big happening, Who's walking around and touching people and always in the middle of it? The devil. That movie is, frankly, a very good movie in its interpretation of Scripture because it's reading between the lines. There are so many things that take place in Scripture. Here's one of them. When, when Satan leaves Jesus after tempting him in the wilderness, what does what do the evangelists record about his departure? Until a more opportune time. What do the people yell at Jesus while he's hanging on the cross? They do, yes. They say, save yourself. And that's what Satan says too, but... What I, what I want you to think about is the, the, it's exactly the same language. If you are the Son of God. And the crowd stands there going, 
if you are the Son of God, save yourself. You don't want to be up there. That's exactly the same temptation that Satan gives Jesus in the wilderness when he says, bow down to me and I'll give all of this to you. Because Satan does own it. He is the prince of this world. That is his kingdom. And Jesus is coming to claim it back. And he says, well, you don't have to die. You know, I'll just give it to you. Why do you have to die for it? You just, just bow to me and then I'll just give it to you. Of course, it's a fake deal because if he bows to Satan, then he can't have it. Okay? But all of this, the, the fact that, excuse me, when the, when, the, when the crowd comes to get Jesus and they say, he says, you know, think about this for a minute. They, do they know who they're coming to get? Yes. They do. They know who they're coming to get. Uh, do they know what Jesus looks like? Absolutely. What does Jesus say? All day, every day, I've been teaching in the temple in broad daylight. Every single person knows who he is. I thought Judas had the point. I thought Judas told him he would point out which one was Jesus. Yes. Yes. Handing over. It's the betrayal. I will give him up to you. But think about this now. So they come, and they stare right at him, and he says, what? Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus Nazareth. And what does he say? <laughs> you know this. What does he say? Yeah. He's over there! <laughs> what, is, what does Jesus say? Here I am. <laughs> well, I mean, kind of. Your English translation says, I am he. And then what do the people do? They shriek and fall down to the ground. Now, why do they shriek and fall down to the ground? I'll give you the answer. One, because Jesus doesn't say, I am he. Jesus says, ego eimi, which is, I am. They come looking for Jesus, and who do they find in Jesus? They find the Almighty God. I am. We wanted Jesus, but I am. That's more than we bargained for. But then they shriek and they fall down to the ground. And here's something really interesting that you don't get unless you actually look at the Greek. This is why every pastor absolutely, absolutely, absolutely needs to make sure that he keeps up with his Greek and doesn't use it as something to pass the seminary and then give up. The word that is used when they fall down and they shriek is only used in one other place in the New Testament. Would you like me to tell you where it is? Well, upon invitation, I will proffer that information. And it is when Jesus comes and the demons shriek, what have you to do with us, you son of God? That's the only other place where the word is used. When the demons shriek out, who is the mastermind? Who's the one at work? It's the devil. And when Jesus dies, what does the devil think? I got him at last. It's about bloody time. And then the Lord says, well, how do you like them apples? Okay. 
That's the perfect example that illustrates <clears throat> the level of power on both sides. Does the devil have power? Yes. Does he have any power apart from God? No. Uh, Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you. Who's he really talking to? The devil. Brother, you think you have power. <laughs> and, you know, you take me to the cross, that's fine. What you don't realize is all of this stuff that you thought you did, my father did it. He put you in charge of all of this because he knew exactly what you would do. And that's why he put you in charge of it. Because all of the things that he knew you would do are all of the things that he knew has to happen here. I have to die. And we knew you'd do such a good job of it, we put you in charge of it. That's the whole thing. That's the revelation of the crucifixion. So that is, that's just like Judas, his realization at the end. He, I've just been a puppet. I've just... Yes. Yeah, Judas saying, what have, I, what have I done? 30 pieces of silver? That's, that's worthless. What have I done? Then, of course, Judas is driven to such despair that he takes his own life. Um, okay, but all of this is to say, who's the one that is in charge? The Lord is the one that is in charge. Now, why do bad things happen? Is it because the Lord wishes to smite people? Oh, no. So, Lutherans can sometimes have a hard time with this because you don't want to say that every bad thing that happens is a direct punishment against a specific sin. But the reality is that every bad thing that happens is a result of sin in the world and a sinful creation and is an opportunity for repentance. So the reality is when something bad happens, what should your first instinct be? Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Lord, we have sinned. Take away this from us. So, you know, there's a deeper reality to suffering and to misfortune in this world than simply, well, you know, poof, sinful world or whatever. Sucks for the people in Florida, but I'm not in the middle of a hurricane. You know, that's sin over there. That's what sin does. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a, it's a hurricane in Florida or a tornado right here, fires on the east coast or on the west coast. Whatever it is, tsunamis out east... Uh, it doesn't matter. Every kind of a misfortune is, first and foremost, a reminder of sin and an opportunity for repentance. And here's the kicker. Now, I'm not going to say that bad things that happen are, are specific punishments against specific sins, because I don't know what your sins are. Only the Lord knows that. But I'm also not going to say that bad things that happen aren't. There is a disciplinary aspect to things. Look at David. David and Bathsheba. What happens to him after he sins? David, after he sins with Bathsheba. God forgives his sin. Okay. Okay. How? He loses his son. The son that is conceived dies. Now that's a misfortune, and that's a misfortune that is a direct... A, a, a direct consequence of sin. So the thing is, does God permit things to happen? Well, absolutely he does. 
That's, that's never been the question in the history of Christianity, does God let this happen? It's never been the question because every Christian knows that God does because nothing would happen if God did not permit it because he is the master and the orderer of the universe. So can we say if a family loses a child, that that's the direct response of the sin of the parents? I mean, I would never preach that. I don't know. That's why I'm saying I would never say, yeah, it is, and I would, I would, I would also not say it's absolutely not. What you say is this is a consequence of sin in the world, and, and, it's, a, and it's, a, it's a grave suffering. It's an opportunity for repentance. It's an opportunity for deeper faith and trust in what the will of God is because we know that the will of God will always work for good even in the midst of misfortune. So there is always a call to Christians to look not at why this specific incident is happening, but within those specific incidences to strengthen your faith and trust and reliance upon God whose will you do know is good, especially when you don't understand how it could be good given the circumstances that you're in. And this is another thing, you know, if somebody, if a family loses a child, I would never preach at the funeral for that child, well, this is the will of God. Now, the will of God is that the sinner would not die and live, but now the Lord is dealing with a creation that is sinful and is full of death, so how does the Lord work with that? Well, sometimes it is the Lord's will that death would come. Look at the cancer patient. I've talked about, this is, this is my perennial example. You pray for Joe Blow, stage four cancer stricken, rotting in the hospital, to rise up and be perfectly healed. And then the next day, Joe Blow dies. And then you are angry at God because God didn't answer your prayers. But he did. God has given much better healing. God has given a much better raising up. See, so in that instance, you can see partly, you'll never see in full, but you can see partly that the Lord is actually the one who is at work. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord wills that people would die. It means the Lord permits it. It means he's, he's playing with what he, what he has to play with in this world. I mean, God has to play by the rules, too. But we pray thy will be done. But we do pray thy will be done. Of course, on earth as it is in heaven. Gail. So if nothing Okay, yes, yes. From the very, very beginning. Yes. You're going to ask about the fall? I'm going to ask, why was evil, why did God allow evil in the world from the very first place? I can't answer that question all the way. Probably not in a satisfactory way. And the reason is not because I haven't studied. In this case, the reason is because I'm not God. Why does he allow evil to enter in in the first place? Essentially, why? If, this, is, this, is a, uh, this is an age-old question. If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing, why, why did the fall happen at all? Now, there's, there's kind of two s small ways to approach that. One is, why does God permit creation to fall? And one of the common answers is, so that he can redeem it. 
God wants to love in the fullest sense of what it means to love, and he can't do that unless he's able to sacrifice himself to do it. So God wants to die for you, and he wants to show you that he wants to die for you, so he does. That's, that's one way. Doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> See, this is the problem when you start asking questions that are a part of the mystery of the will of God. Nothing ever makes sense. <laughs> Let me just get to the second one real quick here. The second thing is, why does God permit the fall? To answer that even to a small degree, you have to back up a little bit and ask, why does the fall happen? And I, I'm going to talk specifically about the fall of man. Why does the fall of man happen? What, what, per, what in creation and in man permits that event even to take place, even to be a possibility? Man's own will. Man's own will. What is it that the devil uh, uh, yeah, what's he, uh, it's in my head and I can't get it to come out. What is he appealing to in the temptation in the garden? The will. Don't think, don't bind your thinking to what God has said. Be a free thinker and make up your own mind. Here's the thing about free will. Do you have free will now? This is a, this is a, a trick question for Lutherans because good old boy Lutherans say no and Lutherans <laughs> who go way further back than the good old boy Lutherans say yes! Now you don't get to decide for yourself that you're going to become a Christian you know, so you say, I, I believe that I cannot believe is the third article of the creed. But you do believe that you cannot believe. That's your choice to acknowledge that you cannot believe. Once you've received the love of God, can you decide if you want to keep having it or turn away from it? Yes, you can. Can you work to not do evil and to work to do good? Yes, you can. Okay, so there is an element of the will. And the will gets better post-baptism, because then you're dealing with what is it called a regenerate will, whereas beforehand you have an unregenerate will, which really doesn't do you any good at all. So, why does man have a will in the first place? Why doesn't God just make them like robots who just do everything they're supposed to do? The, you cannot reciprocate love if you are a robot. That's what she said. You can't reciprocate love. Sorry, that's not me. Yeah, I couldn't hear you. That's fine. I just didn't want you to think I was yelling it at you in a pejorative way. I'm yelling because I'm excited about it, and it's such an important thing. If you don't have will, then God is a spiritual rapist. Because he creates his perfect bride and he says, now you do this, now you do that, now you do this. This is how I'm going to love you, okay? And you will love me back, won't you? And you say, oh, yes I will. And that's not love. 
Because love has to be free. Love has to be freely given and it has to be freely received. Now, of course, you know that it's freely given because God freely gives it to you. But is it freely received? So in the garden, man has a will. Because if man doesn't have a will, then God's not actually created a relationship and a relationship is what he wants. So man has to have a will, even now. <clears throat> after Jesus, why doesn't God use Jesus just to force everyone to go, oh, you know what? We have all sinned and now we really love you, God, and now we trust in you. And then he can say, oh, good. I finally, I finally made sure that nobody's going to die. See, because then the question is, why does God even allow hell? What motivates God to allow hell? But why would he respect the free will of somebody that doesn't want him instead of just saying, no, you're wrong? Because if I were God, I would just tell people that they were wrong and then make them to be right. Because I am impatient. Why does God allow that? Why does God allow somebody to look at him and say, I don't love you. I'll never love you. I have never loved you. I'm never going to love you. I don't want anything... I don't want anything to do with you. I want to be as far away from you as is humanly possible. And why does he take it? This is the creator of the universe. He's going to let some man of dirt walk up to him and say, uh, I don't like you. Why? Well, it makes me think of what is going on so much in the world now where children reject their parents and say, you, uh, you were abusive to me and traumatic, and so I'm going to, I'm going to cut off communication. Sure. And so the parent, what can you do? You can't make somebody love you. You can't make somebody see something they don't want to see. And a lot of parents keep trying to hold on, but... I mean, a parent always loves their child, right? Your, your child might try to cut communication off from you, but you would still reach out. You'd still call and say happy birthday. You'd still send a card or something, and they might throw it in the garbage. But it doesn't matter to you what they do with it. What matters to you is that you tell them that you still love them. Well, that's the way God is. Why do you tolerate that instead of just saying, oh, you don't want to talk to me? All right, well, I'll never talk to you again, and click. How come you don't just do that? Because that's a whole lot easier. It's a lot harder to suffer in love. But the thing is, that's what it is. It's love. Hell is a consequence of the love of God. The love of God that will respect the individual to the point where even if they say, I want nothing to do with you, he says, it breaks my heart. But I can't force you to love me because love has to be free. Or it isn't love. It's rape. Do you see that? So this is what... This is sort of a deeper thing when it comes to the fall. Why does he permit it? Why doesn't he just say, no, stop, don't do it? So, so our free will probably comes from... We didn't have free will until the heavenly fall? Is that no, you were created with will. You're created in the image and likeness of God. Does God have a will? Why does an animal not have a will but you do? Because God created it created us in his image. Right. Animals are not created. Because an animal is not created. A bunch of people are really messed up now because they think animals are going to go to heaven. I've got, I've got a lot of people, strangely, who think that they're created in the image of animals. Uh, I don't understand it. But uh, you're created in the image and likeness of God, which means you have a will like God has a will. God can reason. Says, come, let us reason together. 
hey, let us make man in our image. Man has that ability. You have a will. You have an intellect. Um, and you have a body. So all of this plays into the fall. Why does he allow it? How can he not allow it? I mean, he can, he can say till he's blue in the face, I think that's a really bad idea. I really wouldn't do that if I was you. Well, why would dad not want me to do that? It looks like fun. Why doesn't dad want me to have a couple beers when I'm 15? I think, or, or smoke. Huh? Why doesn't dad want me to smoke? Well, get caught with a cigarette and then have to go smoke the rest of the pack out behind the woodshed and then you'll realize why he didn't want you to do it because it's really kind of icky and it's not good for you. See? Because it, is, it has everything to do with love. Now, I want to look at... Look, you, pay attention to the, the hymnody that you sing. I mean, who can, I, I want you all to sing it. I want you to know the hymns and I want you to sing them. But even if you're not going to sing them, you know, at least open the book up and follow along and read because it's all about the text. I love music, but it's, the music is second fiddle when it comes to the church. It's not a concert and it's not a choir. It's here because of the text. Everything serves the text. It's the setting of the text. So look at this. 756, why should cross and trial grieve me? Paul Gerhard, the best Lutheran hymn writer in the history of the Lutheran church. Fight me. <laughs> hey? Um, Stanza two, when life's troubles rise to meet me, though their weight may be great, they will not defeat me. God, my loving Savior, sends them. God, your loving Savior, sends them. He who knows all my woes knows how best to end them. Why does he send them? Why does he allow that? I can't say. Because I'm not given to say God has not given you the answer to that, and frankly, the, the answer is not the important thing. Let me, let me tell you something, okay? Most of you know Dr. Burke. A bombastic goofball of a man if you ever met one. Amen. <laughs> but when he needs to be, puts on a very good, kind, caring face. And say what you will about the man, when he's being doctor, he's doing a good job. When we lost David, we heard from Dr. Burke all of the time, and do you know what he said? I don't know why this has happened. I can't figure it out. It defies all odds. I don't know why. It's a mystery, but I'm going to figure it out for you. I'll figure it out. I, you know, every time we talk, I still don't know, but I haven't and I'm still working. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. I don't know why. I'll figure it out. And I finally had to tell him, it doesn't matter. The why is not the thing that matters. Why do you get cancer at 36? Why do you lose a spouse unexpectedly? Why do you lose a child? Why is there a hurricane? Why is there an earthquake? I don't know. You're asking the wrong question. It's not about why is this happening. 
It's never been about why is this happening. The, the best answer is because God has permitted it to happen. Why did it happen? Because God permitted it. Why does God permit it? I don't know. Only God knows. So the, the deep sense of consolation doesn't come from knowing why. Frankly, would it change anything if you knew why? Okay, now I know why, but what does it do for me? I don't know, mystery solved. But it's, you don't get any sense of closure from knowing why. And the more wise you do know, the more wise you still ask. There is no answer to the question why other than because God has willed it. Why has God willed it? Because he has. The comfort and the consolation comes then not from knowing why, but from knowing that the Lord is good. The Lord cannot act apart from his nature as being good. The Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord will always be with you. The Lord will always fight for you. The Lord will always protect you. The Lord will always do what is good for you. Who likes a spanking? Nobody. But daddy does it sometimes because it's good for you. Life is full of discomfort and sorrow and sadness. And I'm not saying, well, it's good for you. You know, like you fall down and skin your knee. Well, rub some dirt on it. It'll put hair on your chest. It's good for you. Eat some dirt. Get some antibodies in your body. It's good for you. Back in my day, we didn't have sick kids all the time because we went outside and ate dirt and cow manure and that filled us up with knots or, you know, what. You know, whatever people say, right? Heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's, it's that the Lord wills for things to happen. We're not called to know. We're not given to know that. If the Lord wanted us to know why, he would have told us. He doesn't want us to know why. And even if he did tell us why, you wouldn't be able to understand it. Because in some sense, there really is like a butterfly effect. That the Lord says, I allowed this to happen to you at this time, at this date, in this place, so that 10 years from now, this would take place in Rome, Italy uh, at this time. And you think, well, boy, thanks for doing that to me for that, but how does that benefit me? See, and then you're not thinking right. Because what are you thinking about? Me, 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 me. I want to be happy. I want to be comfortable. I want everything good to me, and God didn't let it happen to me. Oh, something good happened to him? Oh, well, thanks a lot, God. But you don't realize, see, this is why, one reason why it's better that you don't know why, even if you could understand it. Because what you are called to know and what you are called to hold on to is, one, the Lord has willed it, and that's just the fact of the matter. Nothing happens without the Lord being the one to allow it. But secondly, that there isn't anything that the Lord allows that is at its root evil. This is called the theology of the cross, that God accomplishes great good in the midst of great evils. Why is it called the theology of the cross? Well, where, where, did, God accomplish his, where did God accomplish his greatest good in the midst of the world's greatest evil? The cross. If God can use the crucifixion of his own son for good, then he certainly can use anything else for good, and he does. That is the hope and the consolation of the Christian, even when you're dealing with 
you know, trying to reconcile the, the fourth commandment and submitting yourself to authorities and your, the authorities are wicked. Or there is bloodshed and murder and genocide going on and you say, well, I'm opposed to that and God's opposed to that, so why does he permit it to happen? I don't know. He does permit it to happen, but somehow it's for good. Why did the Lord permit the martyrdom of the saints of the early church? Well, the answer for that is in the words of Tertullian. The blood of the martyrs waters the seeds of the church. Would the church have even lived and grown and existed without the deaths of all of those martyrs? No, and it's only the people who come after that then look back on it and say, well, God was kind of mean to those people. Open up a book and read what the martyrs have to say about themselves, and they'll tell you. They all knew they were going to die, and you know what they said? Blessed am I that I get to suffer for the sake of the Lord. Anyway, we are way over time. I hope that that answers that kind of question. We'll see you at the altar. Have you seen that they're going to start putting the obituaries for your doggies and your pets in the 